All right, Joshua 24. Here's how the, the chapter opens. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Now, again, as I've said the last several weeks, the last three chapters of Joshua all open with the scene of Joshua calling some portion of Israel together for an address. And here we have his final words, his final address to the people of God. And Joshua begins by gathering the people in the presence of God. He gathers all the tribes and then he's about to speak to them. Really, God's speaking through him, but he's going to be God's mouthpiece as he says this, these parting words after this incredible, uh, the incredible life that Joshua's lived, 110 years of um, incredible faithfulness, wholehearted devotion to the Lord, just a picture of superior leadership and um, wisdom and following the leading of God. And even the place in which this takes place, you notice they're gathered together in Shechem, the scripture says, which is important because it's the place where all this began. This is where God first promised Abraham the promised land back in Genesis chapter 12. You see that passage there on your handout. Abram passed through the land to a place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree from Morah. And the Canaanites were there, were then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so all of this sort of culminates in this very special and sacred place of Shechem. And returning to the place where it all began, reminded them of how far God had taken them and what God had done to get them there. I mean, my goodness, you think about these people. This group of people that Joshua was talking to are the people who were alive at this pivotal time in Israel's history. They were the people who had completed the wandering. They were the people who had seen the suffering of unfaithfulness of all their ancestors who wouldn't cross over and who perished in the wilderness. And then the 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 tense moments, if you remember, it seems like so long ago when we were talking about that initial crossing and the rivers at flood stage and, and all the majesty of the way God laid all that out and they cross over and they go to that first battle at Jericho and then on it begins and it starts this, you know, several years of continual warfare as they're, as they're you know, taking possession of this land that for so long they've been waiting to possess. Just an amazing story, an amazing journey. But Joshua, as he did last week, he tells things from a different slant. He doesn't do what you would expect him to do. As he retells, as what I'm about to read, I want you to think about how in his retelling, I want you to notice that Israel looks much less like a triumphant nation and much more as a recipient of God's undeserved grace. Joshua just has a way of always being God-centered, always being gospel-centered, always elevating God and not elevating man. And believe me, that's hard to do. 
Because when you're in a situation where God is greatly moving, it's very easy to sort of slide over and sort of begin to take a little bit of his credit. I mean, you know, begin to, you know, get over into the glow of his Shekinah glory and it make you and me look really good because we're in near proximity to where God's doing something great. But Joshua doesn't do that. Verse 2, here's what Joshua says. And Joshua says to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, your father Abraham, and your father Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. And then I took, this is the Lord speaking, then I took your father Abram from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of, of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterwards I brought you out. Again, God saying, I did this, I did that, I did this. Over 20 times, God saying that he did all these things. They didn't. He was the one orchestrating all this. And here's the principle I want you to begin to uh, just ingest tonight, that he's always working whether we see it or not. Because in this passage, what you see is God working in ways that not only Israel wouldn't necessarily have seen, we would oftentimes miss. You see, just notice how, for example, the, the Scripture says, God gave to Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And as Joshua speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying to these people, boy, this makes so much sense as we get to the end of tonight and all of it fits together like a perfect puzzle. But he brings out things that in the beginning make you think like, well, why is he saying that? Why does he say that uh, he could have just said, well, I, I gave to Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. But he says to Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. Why does he say that? But to Jacob I sent to Egypt. Because he's talking to a group of people. Now, now think about this. When the children of Israel are in Egypt in bondage, in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. How, how real do you think the promise of God made to Abraham looked at, to them at that time? As Esau's descendants are where? Where are Esau's descendants as uh, the people are slaving away under Pharaoh's rule in Egypt. They're prospering in the mountainous region of Seir. In other words, they're not, they're not under the, 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 the bondage that, uh, th that these people are under. They're not under, you know, imagine that in that time, the way they're feeling and they're thinking, they're thinking, well, God's turned his back on us. I mean, after 50 years, I mean, you think of how impatient we are. I mean, how are you doing on a 50-year cycle? Anybody in here want to share tonight about some, some burden you've been carrying and praying for for 50 years? That's going to be pretty rare. What about 100 years? What about 200 years? What about 300 years? What about 400 years? How, how are we doing after 400 years? I'll tell you how we're doing. We're all quitting. That's what we're doing. I mean, how do you think that they're laboring uh, under Pharaoh's rule thinking, oh, any day now? Probably not. Especially when they're seeing Esau's descendants uh, prosper. And they're questioning the validity or the trustworthiness of God. They're either thinking either God's not trustworthy 
Or he didn't, that's not what he meant. He didn't, he didn't uh, you know, when he promised to give the promised land to Abram, he, was, he must have meant that for some other people. It wasn't meant for us. Somewhere along the line, we must have got confused because there's no way this is working out in any way that we originally thought it would. Verse 6. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did to Egypt. And then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you, notice God says, a long time. Like, gee, God, it was way worse than a long time. But in God's economy, oh, you dwelt there a long time. Yeah, 40 years. It was a long time. So you dwelt there a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites to, and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and, and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he, he continued to bless you. So I delivered them out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and you came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. But I delivered them all into your hand. I sent the hornet before you which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you the land for which you did not labor, the cities for which you did not build. You dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. In other words, God's saying, you know what? You brought nothing to the table. I did all of this. This is all not an illustration. This is not a historical account of how wonderful you are. It's a historical account of how much I love you and the lengths to which I'm willing to go to, to, to protect you and to watch over you and to be faithful to the things that I've promised you and to see you flourish in my faithfulness. Notice he says, I made your enemies bless you. You see where he, he brings up Balak and Balaam? He even brings up Numbers chapter 23 when, uh, the people, when all the, the nations were conspiring against the Israelites. And so Balak, King Balak gets Balaam to uh, go up and talk to God. And he's going to use all this against the Israelites. And God speaks to Balaam and makes him tell the truth to Balak. And even in, his, even in their enemies, God uses their enemies to bless them. And so what we have here is this whole historical account is not just to show what God has done. There's more here. This isn't just a list of facts about what happened. No, that's not what this is. This is not just to remind the people of what they had gone through? No. See, that would sound very different than what I just read. A list of historical facts would have sounded very different. A list of what they had gone through would have sounded very different. And this is not just 
a rallying cry for nationalism. This isn't about, you should be so thankful to be an Israelite. And this is how great the Israelites are, the people of Israel are. That's not what this is. You know what this is? This is a declaration of exactly who God is. All of the, all of the distinctions that Joshua draws out, all of the information that Joshua is recalling to the memory of the people are centered around the character and nature of the person who accomplished them. He's not just saying, this is what happened and God did all of it. He's saying piece by piece, here's what happened and here's what I did. And he's putting all the pieces together to get us to see that God is always at work in the lives of his people, oftentimes in a multitude of ways that they never even notice. Now, why is Joshua... Uh, you know, wh why is the thrust of this chapter open with a declaration about who God is when really this is Joshua's farewell speech? Why is that the motivation? Why is that the agenda here? Well, because this conversation that we're about to embark from here forward in is so necessary today because so many of the problems within Christianity, if you will, stem from something that Joshua is about to draw out. And you wouldn't expect to find this in the final chapter of this Old Testament book. And yet this is exactly where we find God showing us this, although it is multiple places in the Scripture. It just is a maybe a, an unexpected it's like this beautiful flower that grows up out of the middle of nowhere, just seemingly on its own. That's what this is. So here's why this is important. Because we need to know. Boy, do we need to know this. We can't move on to the implications until we grasp the source. This is a humongous problem today, right here. That one statement. In other words, what I mean by that is that you can't gain understanding. You can't come to a place of understanding. You can't respond to a message until you understand who gave the message, right? So if I hand you a piece of paper and the piece of paper says, you know, it could say anything. There's a sentence on the piece of paper and it says, you know, I'm watching you. And I go, look at this piece of paper. And you go, okay, and you look at it, and it says, I'm watching you. And you go, why are you showing me this? And I go, Pastor Rod gave me this. You'd go, I don't care. But if I told you that that message came from outer space, and you had reason to believe me, that would be kind of a whole different conversation, wouldn't it? Or what if I gave you that message and said, well, uh, I got this in an envelope that I found in my mailbox and it was, it was uh, sent to me from James Comey. Okay? So the point I'm trying to make is that the problem is, is that we move to implication. And that is a huge problem. This is why... 
Thousands upon thousands of times I have stood right here on this platform and I have said, in every context, in every, all 66 books of the Bible, somehow I'm always drawing things back to the character and nature of God. The character and nature of God. Because you must know the character and nature of God before you can find any implication in any of the things that the Bible says. Because who says it means everything. Means everything. And it's not enough for you to say, well, God said it. It used to be enough to say that. But we don't, those days are gone. Today, we live in a culture where People say, well, who is God to you? And who is God to you? And this is God to me. And God is, is manufactured into all sorts of things. And so we live in this pluralistic culture that, that even takes the name of Jesus and twists him into things he is never portrayed to be in the Scripture in places that, are, that would consider themselves orthodox in their theological understanding. I promise you, this is a big, big deal. See, too often times, you, people today hear a practical message and just jump to application. Five quick ways to fix your marriage. Five truths that'll set you free you know four things about parenting four things about this five things seven things about this and and then we just go out to application and let me explain something to you it doesn't work like that that's not the way the bible's designed that's never the been the intention of god if you read the bible and come away with that you've misread the scripture that's not what the bible is 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 saying to us the Bible is declaring the essence of the character and nature of the person of whom it's speaking. Then comes all of the implications of that. But if you don't know who's saying it, you have no chance of rightly responding. Just can't do that. There's so much focus on the how-to to the expense of who is. Let me give you some examples. Because I knew that you'd mentally resist me on this. I could sense it. So I'm going to help you. Here you go. We can't begin to attempt to love until we see who is love. Now there's a perfect example of one of the atrocities being committed against Scripture today. You got all these people running around talking about love and how we ought to be more loving and how we ought to love better and, and, and this and that and the other. And, and it's all useless commentary. It's useless apart from the reality. The only way we can have a discussion about love is we first have to understand who the person is who says he is love. Otherwise, we're just doing something and calling it love, right? Sure we are, but yet it is rampant. There are books after books after books written about love that say nothing about the one who is love, and it's useless. 
You can't begin to serve, even serving, until you digest the submission of Jesus on the cross. Now, I bring this out because this is a very relevant illustration from our reality. You remember a few weeks ago on Sunday morning when I was preaching about the crucifixion and Jesus' death on the cross? And if you were here that morning, you remember that here's hundreds upon hundreds of people packed into this room and you could hear a pin drop. Nobody coughed. Not one page rustled. No one moved. Nobody. The only movement for like a 15 or 20 minute span in this room were tears that were just running down people's faces. I could see them as I was speaking. It was dead silence. Why? Because the reality and the gravity and the magnitude, not of what happened, but of who it happened to. If I would have told you the same story about anyone else who wasn't the God of the universe, it would not have had that effect. The reason that it brings us and grips us the way it is is because of who we're talking about. And so a person who just zealously sets out to serve, I'm going to serve God apart from an understanding of who the God is that they're attempting to serve, is just frivolously filling themselves with time. It doesn't work like that. And so here we have Joshua explaining to us such a, a practical principle for now about the we must stay rooted in the character and nature of the God whom we claim to love and serve. So here's the principle. Our response to God is born out of an understanding of his character and nature. Otherwise, it's a wrong response. You see, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. I don't know what you think. I don't know if you leave here sometimes and think, man, he is mental. Why is he always talking about the character and nature of God? Because I know this to be true to the depths of my soul. This is the way the Scripture speaks. They're just these amazing realities about God. And this is one of them. Any response, responding to a God who is in some form or fashion a figment of your imagination. And unfortunately, there's not a week that goes by that I don't have a conversation with somebody. Most of the time, it's in my starting point class. And we have conversations about people's church background and their upbringing and and. The reason that they've been so confused is because they grew up in a culture, in a church culture, where they were taught all these erroneous things that just simply are not true and they're not biblical. And so they, well-intentioned as they may be, responding to, to the wrong idea of who God is is a disaster. 
So that's why Joshua says the things he says, the way he says them. Look at what he says in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him sincerely in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Then he says again, serve the Lord, exclamation point. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, although it's a portion of verse 15 that's hanging on a plaque in everybody's house, the most important passage in this chapter by far is verse 14. The one that ought to be on the plaque in everybody's house is verse 14. The pivotal moment, the main thrust of what's being said here is verse 14. If you read the chapter, which we're doing, as you study through it, what you're going to find out is that everything up into verse 14 is about motivation. It's about here's who God is and here's what he's done and here's how you can see his character and nature and this is the reason behind you responding to him. Everything up to that has been about that and everything after is going to be about remaining faithful. See, here's how the Bible looks at the Christian life. The Bible would say you need to take an honest, square, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eye look at the scripture and see who God really is. And once you see who he really is, you need to just respond to the reality of who he is and everything else is about maintaining faithfulness to the God whom you've seen. That's my little condensed version. Now, here's how Joshua does it. I mean, I love simple. And so Joshua's my guy. He takes it and he just squeezes it down. He breaks the Christian life down into the simplest of forms. And he says this. Fear God, number one. Serve him in sincerity, number two. And serve him faithfully, number three. One, two, three. Now what I'm going to show you is that what he says right here from verse 14 on will hopefully, beyond a shadow of a doubt, validate everything I've said tonight up until now. Because that's what I think is going on here. So there's this simple idea. I mean, boy, that's simple. Why don't we just get a three-by-five card and we'll just write, fear God, serve Him with sincerity, and serve Him with faithfulness. Oh, yeah, it's so simple, but let me tell you something. It's not... It's not simple to practice. It's difficult to practice. Very difficult to practice. Because of how broken we are as vessels. And we're trying in our brokenness to serve this utterly and completely, magnificently holy God. Which is why there's... So little conversation about the holiness of God because we can't have too many conversations about the holiness of God because that's going to jack up our theology. That's going to mess up what we want to do. That's going to straighten out all these ideas we've made up in our head about God. See, it's, it's, you will sell a gazillion times more books if you just write a book about how, how God can bless you, how he can make you prosperous and wealthy and healthy and happy and joyful. And everyone wants to read that book. 
book. But who wants to read the book about the holiness of God that's going to scare the daylights out of you? Who wants to read that book? Who wants to read the book that's going to make you look directly into the face of what the Bible says this God is? Because, see, that, that's, not going to, that's not going to win you a bunch of friends. Three things. Fear God. Then sincerity. Service in sincerity. And service that is faithful. Hmm. So let's talk for a minute about this fear of God. Well, it's clearly something that's important because we're not talking about something that just pops up in Scripture every now and then. Now, even if the Bible only said it one time, it's still just as much from God and just as much binding and important as if he says it a hundred times. But if he does say it a hundred times, we got to kind of back up a minute and go, Wow. And if you think about how the fear of God is spoken about in Scripture, that it's the beginning of wisdom, that it's, the, that it's, it's in so many ways the source of understanding, that it's the, it's the way the Bible understands that we are to, to, in an infancy, initially, at the core of who we are, it's the foundational way that we relate to God. We relate to God in the beginning through this awe through this fear and then as we grow in sanctification as we grow in our Christian understanding that awe doesn't diminish but it's to grow now you explain to me how we have church after church after church filled with people who are under the delusion that God is He's not really that big on details. And it's okay. And as long as you say you're sorry, whatever you're doing is going to be okay. And His grace and mercy always trumps His justice and His holiness and certainly His wrath. And so we just what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about the things that we want to talk about. Listen, this whole, you know... My buddy Jesus that is being propagated, promoted today. It started as Jesus was our homeboy and now he's just our friend. You know, he's our buddy. He's my buddy. Jesus is me and Jesus. We're just doing life together and... He's just sort of along for the ride with me. And wherever I choose to take him, he goes. And because he loves me and cares about me. And really, it's, it's really about me just being protected from the dangers that may lurk out there. And everywhere I turn, there's my buddy Jesus there to, to care for me and look out for me. And when I hear people talk about Jesus, there's so many times I, I hear a sermon or I I read a book or I or I don't I, I burn the book. I get to two chapters in, then I have a bonfire. But as I'm going along, and, and I think to myself, are we talking about Jesus or Lassie? Which one here? Because they seem to be interchangeable. You know, faithful, dependable, loving, loyal. I don't, I don't think so. I know not. That, that's, that's a disaster. 
But it's a reality. Here's my favorite definition of the fear of God. It comes from Ed Welch, a phenomenal author, by the way. And this book is in the bookstore, I'm pretty sure, when people are big and God is small. But here's how he defines it. He says, the fear of the Lord is reverent submission that leads to obedience. Now, that would be enough in and of itself. But then he goes further to make sure that we understand it. Like terror, it includes a knowledge of our sinfulness and God's moral purity. And it includes a clear-eyed knowledge of God's justice and his anger against sin. But this worship slash fear also knows God's great forgiveness, mercy, and love. That is what the fear of God is. It is an understanding of all of who God is. Listen, that's, that's when you know that you're in a genuine relationship. You see, when Lisa and I were dating, the relationship wasn't genuine. And the main reason it wasn't genuine, because she thought I was only good. She thought I was just amazing. And that all I ever thought about was her. And that I was always, you know, uh, I always did the right thing. And I always said the right thing. And I, but then we got married. And the relationship became genuine and authentic. And, you know, and then she got to see the fullness of the character and nature of Tony. You see, that's how you know you know somebody. When you know all. When you know and so for God, it's not the good side and the bad side. For God, it's the, it's the grace side and the wrath side. It's the, it's the justice side and the mercy side. It's all of it. You can't just camp on one side. It doesn't work that way. Two reasons why people in church after church after church are ineffective. And they struggle, even in a church like this. Two reasons. First of all, they're trying to serve sincerely and faithfully apart, apart from the fear of God. You know what? As I was thinking about this chapter, and really these last three chapters, I just uh, studied them over and over and over and over and over. And how they all fit together and what each one was saying. And here's the thing. When Joshua says, fear God and serve him in sincerity and serve him in faithfulness, you, you know what? You know, you can't, you can't do the second one apart from the first one. You can't even change the order. You can't serve God in faithfulness. Unless you fear God. You can't do anything unless you fear God. Apart from fearing God, nothing else is going to happen. You must fear God first. Then you move into sincerity. And then you move into faithfulness. Apart from that, there'll never be faithfulness. If you try to just be faithful, it's not going to work. And then you're going to begin to see that's what's wrong in our culture today. you got all these people running around who maybe sincerely in their heart genuinely want to serve God faithfully, but you'll never succeed in that apart from a genuine fear of who He is. You cannot, you simply cannot do it. It won't work. 
You can't manufacture faithfulness. You can't motivate faithfulness out of your own creativity. The only way that a broken vessel can sustain sincerity and faithfulness is by the supernatural motivation that is only generated through the fear of God. Boy, now, that'll preach, I promise you. That'll, that'll, that unravels 50 years of church history right here. That's where the wheels came off. What Joshua is about to resist the urge to do, my predecessors did not resist the urge to do. And they bear the blood on their hands of multitudes of people who have been deceived into believing a false gospel and, I believe, an utter false sense of security. No, there's no sincere service or faithfulness apart from fear of God. And then also trying to find meaning in the service of God rather than God himself. No. You cannot discover the character and nature of God by serving him. You see, we have another set of people on the other side of the fence, and here's what they do. They basically bring Christianity to the table by trying to live it the same way they live their secular lives. So we live in a culture, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, where the average person is just spinning around like a top all the time. You're going 90 miles an hour in 20 different directions, and everybody's running all over the place, and unbelievably, nobody has any time to do anything, and we all have, have these lists of things that we got to do, and we're going, 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 and then we come to church, and we think we're just going to do that for God. And so we think, if I can just get real busy for God in the, in the swirl of busyness, I'm going to learn about who God is. That ain't going to happen. That's just not going to happen. That's not going to happen. No. Meaning in service is generated by an understanding of the person to whom you're serving. Apart from that understanding, whatever you're doing has been done in your own strength. See, here's the problem. The problem is taking that which is meant to be a response and using it as a tool. Isn't that something? See, think about it. The service, service to God, you know what that is? That's a response. I serve God out of a response. A resp- I don't serve God in order to earn something. I serve God out of a response. The motivation to serve God is gratitude in my understanding of who God is compared to who I am and the fact that that God who's that way loves this Tony who's this way, that unbelievable connection in gratitude spurs me to then respond rightly in service to God. But if I set out to serve God so that I could prove to God that I'm worthwhile to, serve, to love or if I set out to serve God so that I can make up for all the wrongs that I've done in the past or if I set out to serve God for whatever other reason it is, it will not work. You can't do that. God's nature rejects that because you're asking God to be a way that he refuses to be. He cannot be because it's not him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or you take the power that's God 
The power of God. There you go. Sorry. Or you take the power of God and then you attempt to use it for yourself. Well, never mind. I'm not touching it. Taking the power that's God's and attempt to use it for yourself. So the principle is the gospel is not about personal empowerment, but a relationship with a holy God. It's not personal empowerment. So I'm telling you, if you listen with new ears, I'm telling you, if you have gospel conversations with people, I'm talking about people who think they genuinely know God. If you listen with clear ears, you know what you're going to hear? You're going to hear that if things are going well in my life, God's blessing me. But if things aren't going the way I think they ought to go, then something's wrong. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you realize this or not, but if that's the way you think, you think you're God. That's a problem. You're not the discerner of what's good and bad. God doesn't exist to make your dreams come true. That's not how this relationship works. And you see, we so oftentimes think that if we jump through the hoops that we should jump through, that God is going to jump through the hoops. He's going to bless us in the ways we think He ought to bless us. Where did we get that idea? I think most people got that idea from the pulpit in the church in which they grew up in. And that is a lie. You and I are not the determiners of, of our own destiny nor anyone else's destiny and what the path is to get there. And so when you begin to hear people talking about God, listen. Listen for them to say, you know what? I'm in a dark place. I'm hurting right now. I'm struggling right now. I don't know what's going on, but I'm sure that God's trying to show me something. I'm sure that he's up to something, and I'm looking forward to seeing what it is. That's a beautiful statement that we just so oftentimes don't hear. So what we do is when things aren't going the way we think they ought to go, we start trying to figure out what to change. We feel like if I push this sequence of buttons, I'll get this response. Or if I push this sequence of buttons, I'll get this response. So if someone gets cancer, maybe I didn't pray enough or I didn't do this enough or I didn't do that enough. Or if this doesn't work or if that doesn't work. Or... Wait a second. This is not about personal empowerment. You cannot have sincerity or faithfulness without the fear of God because it's impossible to have Love for God if you think that he exists to serve you. You see, people think, they'll tell you all day long, I love God with all my heart. But when they say the word G-O-D, they mean something different than what the Bible says. They mean I love the God who takes care of me. I love the God who blesses me. I love the God who's, who 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 
keeps my job going well or is watching out for my finances or making everything work out well. And I think, what is wrong with us? Did it ever occur to any, anybody that maybe a sovereign God who knows all things understands that certain things for you would be far more beneficial to you in the future, though you will not understand it in the process? How many times have I said, had God told me in the beginning Now, Tony, here's the deal. When I save you, you're going to become a preacher. I'd have jumped out the window. Right out. That's not how it works. He says, Tony, when I save you, I'm going to become Lord, which means everything from this point forward is going to go according to my plan, on my timetable, my way. And the more you rail against that, the more agony you're going to inflict upon yourself and everyone around you. Because I'm a faithful God. Look, look, I'm I'm not making this up. Joshua is just going to take us there. Look at verse 16. So the people answered and said, now, so Joshua's laying out the fear of God. He he lays out the premise. Here's, Here's what you need to know. You fear God. You serve him with sincerity and you serve him with faithfulness, right? So the people respond, boy, this is today, right here today. This probably happened this morning in 25 churches within 100 miles of here, right here. The people answer and say, far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Notice, they know the information. Remember I said, this isn't about information. They know the historical account from the house of bondage. You did great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways as we went among all the people through, the, through whom we passed. And the Lord drove them out from before us, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, man, you'd think right there... The, the pastor's going, oh, this is so great. Look at this wonderful people who are responding to God in such a wonderful way. And Joshua says, you cannot serve the Lord. Huh? What? You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Oh, now there's a, can we get that evangelism model down at Lifeway? Do they have the, do they have the God will not forgive your sins packet? Can we buy that tract? Let's see how good that is. We knock on the door. Hey, how you doing tonight? Got a little surprise for you. Do you know that you cannot serve, you cannot serve the Lord for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. How do you feel about that tonight? Do you think you want to say yes? Come on. You know it's irresistible, right? Joshua's not, he doesn't even flinch. I'm telling you, he understands this principle at the core of who he is. He knows that he loves these people. And so he knows if they're deceived, it's going to be disaster. If we don't fear God, we're going to fear something else. 
That's what's going to happen. If we don't fear him, we're going to fear something else because we're going to fear something. Mark it down. And what else is true? If we don't worship God, we're going to worship something else. Two things that will forever and always be present in our life is the fear of something and the worship of something. Always. And so Joshua, based on his understanding, rather than telling the people what they want to hear, Joshua tells the truth about what God demands from those who follow him. He does the unthinkable. He says, listen, I'm not going to water this down and just make it sound all fluffy and wonderful. Oh, here's the thing. It's a free gift. All you got to do is pray this prayer. Why don't you just repeat after me? And all your sins are going to be forgiven, and you're going to go to heaven for sure. For the rest of your life, you can lay your head down and know that you're going to go to heaven. You don't have to change. Nothing has to change. All you got to do is say the magic prayer that I'm about to say. You just repeat it after me. Come down to church. We'll sign a little card, dunk you in some water, and everything's going to be good. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Who would not want that? Come on. Who's not, who's not game for that? Weren't we just having a conversation, Rod, about what happens? See, now I'm, I'm thrust back into all these worlds again, and so now I'm thrust back into Rod's world, and so now I have children who are going to VBSs around here like his kids have for years. And how many times has he come to my office and said, what is the deal with, and then, then we had, me and Matt had this conversation after Centricid about this insatiable desire to manipulate children into receiving Christ, into just, into making it every possible way fun and exciting and carefree and wonderful and never sharing any of the harsh realities of that. Does that happen here? No. You ever been to VBS here? It's a whole different ballgame. You know what we do? We talk about the gospel. And we talk about the God of the gospel. And we don't put this. You think I'm going to get up in front of 200 kids and go, now raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell. Well, who's the moron that's not going to go for that? I'm in. I mean... But it happens every day. Some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, I, I, when I was a kid, raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell. Really? I would hate to stand before God with that on my conscience. Joshua, on the other hand, he resists the temptation. He resists it. He is suspicious of quick affirmations of faith and doesn't first count people who don't count the cost of true discipleship. Oh, no, he's not buying that. So what happens is our kids get back from camp and the first conversations that, we, that I have, I, don't, I didn't start the conversations, the first conversations I have with parents and leadership from camp is, 
the children that made professions and who counseled with who and who talked to who and who was talking to, right? So this morning, when Olivia comes walking down here to me, I already know the whole story. I don't have to call Tim and Renee. I already know because I already got the full report of the whole conversation. I already know that what was talked about. I already know what she said. I already know she's talked to her parents. I already know all that because I need to know what's going on. And then I have parents coming to me. Well, my child made a profession of faith, but I'm not done talking to him, so I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Because you gotta, we have a responsibility in this. We gotta make sure that we, we don't just jump on some quick affirmation of, hey, everything's gonna be great. So Joshua wants them to reckon with the reality of their own sinful inclination to, to fall into idolatry and to recognize that this is a deeply serious commitment. Not some casual acknowledgement that they can later ignore with no consequences. Yeah. Now, what was it we sang this morning about us being prone to wander? Isn't that what we sang? Isn't that true? You see, we sing that because we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that both the God who is majestic and holy, has connected us in salvation to him as a fetter. And yet at the same time, we are prone to wander. And so there's this constant tension between the flesh and the spirit, right, that exists in the Christian life. But we have to be aware of that. We can't just be, you know, running through life thinking, well, every, I mean, hey, everything's hunky-dory. I prayed a prayer. I'm going to go to heaven. I don't have to worry about it. No. It doesn't work like that. We, God's called us to, to serve Him in sincerity and to be faithful over the long haul because if you were really if you were really of us, you would have continued with us. Isn't that what the Bible says? So if you're not, if you're not faithful, then you're not genuine. And you're never going to be faithful unless you begin with the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. Now, who in the world is going to make the case that you can come to saving knowledge, that you can, you can come to salvation void of wisdom? No. It, it's, it's wisdom that's attainable by a five-year-old. But it's wisdom based on the reality that God is not a joke. It's not a game. We're not playing a game here. You don't just, whatever you think about God is what He is. No, that's not how this works. There's just too many people today that are attempting to make Christians without Christ. I just can't, I can't stomach another blog or article in Christianity today about a pastor who no longer preaches on sin because it upsets the congregation or a group of people that's running around trying to save people. 
Really? Since when has it been our job to save anybody? We've never saved anyone, nor will we ever. We don't have the authority. You should never even say that. Our job is to present God for who He is and let the Spirit of God do the work that only He can do. But we're not to paint it up and glorify it and glitz it up and glamorize it and make it. That's not our job. Our job is to lay it out as it is and say, here's God. What are you going to do with this? And if you reject it, that's on you. But if you accept it, at least you know what you're getting yourself into. You see, for Joshua, it's all about before you make this commitment, you need to understand the nature of this God to whom you're giving yourself. Wouldn't that be helpful? Wouldn't that be helpful? So now, just a point of clarification before we move on. I want you to understand, I'm not saying that a person has to fully understand and have and understand and possess the fear of God before salvation. I'm saying that before you start doing things in the Christian life, you got to fear God. You understand what I'm saying? See, the Spirit of God can draw somebody, and the reality can, can impact them in an instant that God is real and that He does exist, and that He, and, and boom, they can respond and receive Him as Savior and Lord. And then in those next sequence of, of time, understand who He is and gain an, a, 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 an understanding of His character and nature. But listen, you can't just jump from, I don't know anything. I prayed a prayer, now I'm a Christian, and just start trying to serve God, trying to be faithful, trying to be sincere. You can't be sincere because you don't know who He is. You understand? you got to know who He is. And so a person who either, for example, here, if you, if you get saved and initially, immediately are, are, are placed into a D group, that's the perfect incubator for discipleship. You're immediately immersed in the community. It's the perfect incubator for understanding of the character and nature of God. Because you have people to help you. You have godly counsel. You have the word of God open. And in the, in the, in the dynamic that exists there of iron sharpening iron, you quickly come to the realization of the awesomeness of the God whom you serve. Yeah. That's why community is so vitally important. So, he brings up jealousy. There's a selling point. Do we have the jealousy evangelism kit? Is that one out yet either? You know, the God is jealous. It comes with DVDs, tracks. Study guides. We got everything about the jealous nature of God. Is that a top seller? I don't think so. But it's central and fundamental to the essence of who God is. You can't get around it. There's no 
resisting it. At the core of his identity as God is the fact that he burns with jealousy for the undivided allegiance and affection of his people. You see, when you're sharing Christ with someone, you need to tell them, listen, he's a jealous God. And so if he's your Lord and you decide you're going to go do something else or serve someone else, do not under any circumstances think he's going to be okay with that and just allow that to happen. That ain't going to go down because it's about to get really ugly because he does not like that at all. He is very much a jealous God. And very much a jealous God about his people. See, divine jealousy is not like our green jealousy. It's totally different. It's zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when it is broken. You see, the jealousy of God is the, is the energy that he exerts passionately that is provoked and stirred to take action against whatever or whomever stands in the way of his enjoyment of what or who he loves. That's how that works. So you've got to be understanding of who this God is. So look at what Joshua says as we finish. Look at verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Now remember, they just said, oh no, far be it from us. We love God. We're going to serve him. We, we, and they gave the whole historical account of how they got out of bondage. Joshua says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. After he, is, after he has done uh, you good, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. Warning number three, and the people say, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, Joshua said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua makes a covenant with the people that day and made for them a, statu a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it, is, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. What that is, is the biblical account of somebody raining on someone else's parade. That's what just happened. That is somebody saying, yes, 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 rah, rah, rah. We're here to serve. We love it. And Joshua's like, I don't think you're listening. So finally, he just gets down to it and says, well, then why don't you put away your foreign gods? You're saying all the right Sunday school answers while you got little statues in your pocket right now. Now, that's not. I mean, we got to go, but that's not for now, is it? 
There's nobody was sitting in here this morning. There was nobody sitting in here this morning with full attention to listening to the sermon. Grateful to be here. Always sits in the same place. So you know them. They're in front of you, beside you, behind you, wherever it is. They're always there. Sweet people, nice people. You say hello to them. And, And they're sitting there and they're listening. And their life's not riddled with idolatry, is it? They're not slaves to materialism or to the, or, or, or the fear of other people. This, this place on Father's Day wasn't filled with men whose lives revolve around their career, who do not lead their families and put God first. That didn't happen this morning, did it? It didn't happen. We're all just doing fine. Isn't that what went down? No. Because we won't put away our foreign gods. Because we sit in church and our pockets are filled with idols. Our minds are filled with idols. We are a people riddled with idolatry. Not you, them. Judge them. See, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. That's talking about outsiders. I'm talking about judge the people that sit around you on Sunday morning. Judge them. Judge them. I'm giving you permission. Based on this, based on what Joshua has told us just tonight about the character and nature of God, is it sufficient discipleship? Is it serving God in sincerity and faithfulness? If you come and sit in worship once a week on Sunday morning, most of whom leave after church and don't even go to Sunday school. But even if you just went to Sunday school, is that that a person who has a grip on the character and nature of the God of the Bible? I mean, I'm, I'm giving you permission. Judge them in your heart right now. Is it? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. Are you kidding me? Are we to the place where we think, well, you know, I have to go to church again on Sunday? Well, I'm not going on Sunday night. I'm not going on Wednesday night. Don't think I'm doing anything extra. Really? So you you want a little window into into a gaze, into seeing the reality of the spiritual landscape around you? Look around you and ask this question. Who do I see serving the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness? And there you'll find the people who genuinely possess the fear of God and the Spirit of God. And outside of that, you're going to find a multitude of people who have deceived themselves into thinking that they have a relationship with a God that they've made up in their own mind. And trust me, on the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus is going to look them square in the eye and say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. Oh, but I've done all these things in your name. You know what you did? You tried to serve me without the fear of God. Oh, but we prophesied in your name, and I did this, and I did that. Oh, yeah, you were busy. You came to a lot of implications, but you didn't have the information. You did not fear me. You do not know me. You don't belong to me. They're all around. They hear the same things you hear but it just bounces off. And so when you you ask yourself, you say, I'm just telling you, can you walk away from this chapter? 
and come up with some theological understanding of a scenario by which we as a church should be running around begging people to do this or that? No. No begging here. When was the last time you heard me stand up here and start begging? Oh, we need 10 people to sign up for this because we don't have anybody serving over here. We don't have anybody doing this over there. We don't have any. You know why? Because that blood's not coming on these hands. No, you've got to. You can't just start jumping around into busyness and thinking that you're walking in faithfulness to God. Oh, no. It's the fear of God. When you have the fear of God, nobody has to say anything to you. I hope you have people in your life like I do. Young believers who call me on the phone Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays. They go, sometimes they just send me texts. Pastor Tony, thank you so much for just, thank you for just letting me be a part of your church. I'm so grateful. Thank you for the sermons you preached. Just thank you so much. They'll call me and say, I just, I can't wait for Wednesday night. I can't wait till Sunday. I can't wait. It's the fear of God. It's the fear of God. You don't have to worry about someone who fears God. Yeah, if, if you fear God, you know, every couple of years, Adam and Rachel, you, you're over here, you're over there, right? Every couple of years, the, the, the government's going to send you to a new place. But if you, if you fear God, wherever you go, is there a concern that you'll go somewhere and you... Sure, your goal is to find a church, but, but the fear is never that we're just going to not go to church or not worship God because we fear God. See, that's not even on the table. It doesn't matter. You can send them to Timbuktu. They're going to figure something out. There's going to be the worship of Yahweh God because you fear Him. You see? No one has to twist your arm or beg you or prod you or push you. It's the natural response. And Joshua's listening going, I, I, I'm, not, I'm concerned. You see, his hearers, they were apparently shocked that he would address them in this manner about serving God. They're like, he even says, now you're witnesses today. And they just respond, we're witnesses. I'm thinking, oh, man, listen. It would seem... In our culture, that Joshua should have nurtured their affirmation, but he didn't. I mean, you know what would have happened today? They would all sign the card and got baptized that day. That day. Good gracious, alive. So, why? Why is Joshua so reluctant, resistant? Well, it's a simple answer. Because he knows God. A good shepherd's not afraid of the sheep. He's afraid of the chief shepherd. He knows the God. Who, listen, it's a fearful thing to stand up and 
open God's word and be his mouthpiece and know that as the spirit of God speaking, the flesh of the vessel can get in the way. That's a fearful thing. You don't just wing it. There's no winging it. You better know what you're going to say before you say it. Because trust me, the God whom you're speaking on behalf of, he's not joking around. And especially if you're trying to put words in his mouth. Which is why the Bible says, you ought not desire the position of teacher. You ought to be scared of that because if you, if you teach, you're going to be judged by a stricter judgment. So Joshua understands. He knows that God will not be mocked or trifled with. He understands that. It, when God says He won't be, it, make no mistake, God will not be mocked. Make no mistake, He will not be mocked. So it may look like Someone's winning. It may look like something's working. It may look like a lot of things. I don't care what it looks like. He will not be mocked. So therefore, anything less than utter sincerity or being utterly sincere in a commitment to serve, God would detect and would judge them, which is exactly what happens. In the very next book. You see? See the point here that Joshua is drawing out for us. Is that. You can say all the right things. But it's what's in your heart. It's what's inside. It's what's the motivation. God's not looking down and saying, oh, look, look at my, look at my son, look at my daughter, look at them serve, look at them go. That's not what, that, God's not doing that. That's what everyone else is doing. You know what God's doing? He's looking down going, look at my son, look at my daughter, look at why they're serving. He's going, look, look at my daughter over there. Look at her sacrificing for my glory because she loves me. He's going, look at my son over here. Look at this family over here that's, that's foregoing leisure to suffer for the glory of my sake. Look at that. Look at that. But then there's also people that are busy doing the very same thing so that they can appear to be spiritual. And God says he vomits when he looks at that. It makes him sick. Your mouth can be saying the very same things, but if it's not right in your heart, he, he plugs his ears. And so finally, after all this, we come to the very last verse, which I cannot let us go home without talking about, then we'll be done. Verse 28. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Now why did that just stop me in my tracks? So here's these people who are quick to affirmation, who are saying all the right things, who Joshua's trying to temper 
and trying to make sure. Do you understand what you're saying here? Do you understand the God whom you're, you're committing yourself to? Do you understand the relationship that you're involving yourself with? Do you get all this? Are you sure? He's a jealous God. He's not going to forgive your foolishness. Now, you better understand. And after all that, Joshua let the people depart, each one to where? Look at, look at how amazing this God is to their inheritance. He continues to bless his people. You see, this is why you've got to be so careful about all this nonsense about, of, 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 of prosperity gospel that's infiltrated people's thinking. That if you believe that whenever you're doing good, God's blessing you, then what about when you're lying to the Holy Spirit and you depart to your inheritance? So you know what they all do? They all go home and go, well, God must have bought it because he must be happy with us because look at our inheritance because look at how good things are going. Right? Isn't that what happened? I mean, if you get a raise at work, then God must be happy with you. If you get a clean bill of health, God must be pleased with you. It must be linked to your faithfulness. And yet here goes a group of people off to their own inheritance who are, they're posers. We know the history. We know what happens. You know what happens? They turn their back on God. That's what they do. They do exactly what Joshua warned. And you know what God does? He still shows them grace. He still shows them grace. Just like he does to you and just like he does to me. Part of fearing God is realizing how many times in the first 25 years of my life when I was such a scoundrel and a scumbag that God still poured grace out on my life and I didn't even know he existed, nor did I care. But he was graceful. It helps me understand his character and his nature. It makes me very suspect to gauging my relationship with God based on my circumstances around me. That's a devastating error. Don't do that. So the same grace that has provided every man with his own inheritance will be sufficient for all the trials, tests, and opportunities and possibilities that the future will offer, if only they'll continue to trust and obey. You see, if we walk in faithfulness, motivated by a, a genuine fear of God, then the grace that he bestows on us is sufficient for whatever may come. So the good news after a hard message like this is, look, we're about to pray and be dismissed, and I want you to understand something. If you're a, a born-again child of God tonight, the grace on your life is sufficient for whatever lies ahead, okay? You hear me? If there's a tumor growing in you right now that you don't know anything about, no doctors found, but it's growing and it is voracious, the grace of God is sufficient for that. 
If there's a head-on collision in your future that you don't know anything about, if there's a tremendous loss or devastation, or if there's some great victory and triumph, whatever it is, the grace of God is sufficient. It will hold you. It will sustain you. It will care for you. It will love you. It will nurture you. Just know whom the God is who's bestowing the grace upon you. Don't make him up in your head. Mold him, shape your understanding by the Scripture. And then what you'll find is glad and joyful, faithful, sincere service unto God. How else can you respond? I don't know. I don't know. The more I know about the character and nature of God, the more I want to run through every brick wall I see for His glory. The more I know that nothing's too hard for him, the more I know that nothing's too impossible for him, the more I know the reality that he will do exceedingly abundantly above that which I could ever ask or think, including things that I don't want to happen because he's just that good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Joshua. So grateful. I'm so thankful.